Well, I guess everybody figured out the time. Did that change automatically up there? Yeah, that's 10.50 up there. That's not right. So, okay. Uh, I did remember to set the time, so anyway. We're studying John's Gospel, Chapter 3. And the title of this message today is really kind of similar to what we've talked about in the past, a ruler's ignorance. Today I'm calling this a master in ignorance. A master in ignorance. Um, it's amazing how you can spend your, your life going to school uh, and never learn the truth. I've told you over and over uh, because it's related to so many things. To me, one of the greatest questions ever asked was the question, what is truth? What is truth? Um, the only thing that's going to matter when a person is leaving this world, and we all will, is having the correct answer to that question, what is truth? It is a denomination that's so important. Um, it's the truth that saves, and the truth is a person. It's not just a way of thinking. It's not a creed and so forth. But as we learn in a recent message that I gave out of the book of Proverbs, um, Christianity involves a progression of things. And it begins with knowledge. It begins with knowledge. But to get the right knowledge, you got to have the right instructor. So technically, in this progression that the Lord presents to us in Proverbs, instruction comes first. Because there are people who teach and do not have correct knowledge. This is a description of the problem of Nicodemus. He had been given instruction all his life. But it was not according to knowledge. And this is what the Apostle Paul was referring to in Romans chapter 10. In the first few verses there. He said that his prayer to God for Israel was that they might be saved. And then he said that he could testify of their zeal of God, but it was not according to knowledge. They had a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And so the question is why? And the reason is because uh, they had not been given correct instruction. Um, we learn from the book of James in the third chapter that this knowledge comes from above. I'd like for you to turn with me there to see this because I think it's at the very uh, root of what's going on here in the uh, <clears throat> third chapter of John's Gospel when it comes to understanding the situation with Nicodemus. James chapter 3 and verse 13. Who is a wise man now notice this, and endued with knowledge among you. Good question. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge? That word endued carries the idea of 
of instruction which carries the idea that we're not born knowing anything. We have to be taught everything that we know. And it begins when we're born with our parents teaching us the simplest things of life. And so this knowledge comes from without. It comes from another source. And James goes on to explain it in verse 13. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter, bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But this wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So he's telling us here that there are two sources of wisdom. There's two sources of knowledge. One is from above, and that's where you get the true wisdom. That's where you find the answer to the question, what is truth? It has to come down from above or you'll never have it. How about the knowledge? You can't find it down here on this earth. Those that are trying to find it on earth, the Apostle Paul said, will be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So what I'm trying to teach here is something that's really pretty simple as we find it in Scripture. There's two sources of knowledge and wisdom. There's the earth, apart from God and without God, and there's from heaven, that which is from God. And he has to raise up instructors. He has to do that. And so when it comes to the gifts that God gives people, one of them is teaching. And these teachers have to be raised up by the Lord to teach true knowledge and true wisdom. Now, turn with me to Romans uh, chapter 10. We uh, have already quoted from that. But let's put our eyes on it because it, it's so critical in understanding the third chapter of John's gospel. Verse 1 of Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So there's that word, knowledge. But as we <clears throat> learned recently in our studies of, of Proverbs, knowledge begins with having the right instructor. And if that instructor is not somebody that has learned where you get it, then your knowledge is going to be maybe with zeal, but it's going to be an incorrect knowledge. It has to come from God. And so Paul develops this thought all throughout this chapter uh, he says in verse 3, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, which is a description of Nicodemus, and going about to establish their own righteousness, which is a description of Nicodemus, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And so here again, we see that the 
The way you get it is simply by believing it. And that's it. You have to believe it. But we have to be careful about what that means. When you say you believe something, you're going to act accordingly. And that will be the proof that you actually believe it. You can believe something to be true and then not do it. But if you do not do it, then you betray your profession of belief. Because a proper uh, display of the Christian faith is actually living what you believe. And so verse 4 is very important when you understand what believing is. You can believe as Satan believes and trembles, but he's not saved. The devils believe and tremble, but they're not saved. But they believe. There were many among the Pharisees that believed, but not unto salvation. And so... When you really believe the message from heaven, it has a converting power about it. It will change you from being a self-centered person to being a God-centered person. Where all the glory is to him in everything. This was not the case with the Pharisees. And this is what Nicodemus was. Verse 5 in Romans chapter 10, For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But that's the problem. Uh, how can a man keep the law? How can he, can he live the law? Well, that's what Romans chapter 7 is really all about. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, but when it came to the law, he said he couldn't fi find out how to do it, how to live it. And the reason is because he kept thinking that that responsibility rested on him. That he would, now that he had the information of what is required to go to heaven, he would now have to live it. He would have to do it. And he said, I know what the law says. I've tried to live that standard. But I find another law inside that keeps me from ever being able to do it. Because I have a nature in me that loves the world and the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And it's a law. And I cannot convert myself from being that way. And that's what he was saying. I cannot save myself by keeping the law. I have a nature in me that I cannot change. And neither can God. Now, I want you to hear me carefully on this because I don't want to be confusing. God cannot change the evil nature. So what's his remedy? It's death. That's the remedy. This is how bad off we are, folks. We can never, in our nature, uh, learn enough, strive enough to be different, so that eventually we are as righteous as God, which is being holy, uh, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. There is no way that our nature that we were born with can ever be different than it is. There's something I've discovered in Scripture when it comes to the nature of God and the nature of man. God said in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. Do we understand from that that God cannot sin? 
because he doesn't have a nature capable of sin. But man is what he is, and he changes not as well. We cannot change from what we are. I don't care how much you go to church. I don't care how many Bible verses you memorize. I don't care how many good works you go out here and try to do. It does not change one bit our nature. And so God's message is you have to die to it. And this is why Paul said, I die daily. And so back some time ago, I don't know whether you were here to hear it or not, I brought a message on what is converted and is not converted. And I brought out the point that the old nature cannot be converted. It cannot. The only remedy, according to God's word, for the old nature that we were born with is death. And that's why Paul said, I die daily. I die every day because it's the only remedy for the problem that I have. I have to die to everything that I am, 100% of everything that I am. I have to die to what I think. I have to die to what I would do. Now, this brings us to the significance of Philippians 2.13. It is him that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Why does it say that? Because thinking God's thoughts and living his way is not possible for man in his nature. He cannot. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. So we have to die to our thinking, and we have to die to what we want, which is our will, which is our way. Our way is just another way of, of um, putting the thought out of the will of man. We have a will that we can't change. And it's not toward God, it's toward self. It's what I want, my way. And this is what we have to die to every day, is our will and our way. When we come to an understanding of this knowledge that comes from heaven from an instructor that believes this book, when we come to that point, then we can begin to understand the problem that Nicodemus has had his whole life. He's been receiving instruction from people who did not study this book and come to a correct knowledge of the truth. And so this is what James is explaining in James chapter 3. Um, so I'm, I'm going to just mention this one more time to you. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? And then he goes on to say this wisdom that he's talking about here is from above. It's from above. It's from, not from the earth. And so if you spend your life trying to understand truth and the answer to the question, what is truth, by going to the public education system or being born in a home where the parents who are instructors are not saved, then you have no access to this wisdom that comes from above. No access. The advantage of coming to church is it's the pillar and ground of truth. And we learn in Paul's letter to the Corinthians and also to the Ephesians that God raises up pastors, 
prophets, evangelists, and teachers in the church. And that's where you get the right instruction so that you have the right knowledge. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 10. Um, Romans chapter 10, because it's just amazing to me how God has written this amazing revelation to us. But if you look at verse 6 of Romans chapter 10, but the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. You're not supposed to say in your prayers, Lord, send somebody down from heaven to tell us the truth. Why? Because he came down. To pray and ask for him to come down is a huge mistake. It's a denial of the record of God's word. He came down. He was born in Bethlehem's manger. The whole Old Testament was a prophecy of his coming. His coming. So, so don't walk around wondering who's going to come and tell us the truth the whole Bible is about the fact that God himself would come and tell us the truth. Well, the primary way that he would come and tell us the truth is in this book. He would inspire it, and he would preserve it. And the Old Testament prophets were to teach it, and that's what they were, the prophets. They were teachers to teach you the answer to the question, what is truth? It's a person. It's not just a way of thinking. It's the person of Jesus Christ. So say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Why? Because he's, he's already come. Verse 7, or who shall descend into the deep? Now the word deep there is a reference to the grave and what's beyond. What do we know about that subject? What do we know about dying? What do we know about what's on the other side? And the answer is absolutely nothing. What do we know about God? Well, he tells us in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. You know absolutely nothing about me. Nothing. That's what that means. I mean, think about it. This is what it means. My thoughts are not your thoughts. If that's the case, then what do we know about his thoughts? Nothing. If his ways are not our ways, then what do we know about God's ways? Absolutely nothing. So the question is, what do we know about God? What do we know about heaven? What do we know about righteousness? The answer is absolutely nothing. I mean, folks, this is not really complicated when you think about it. But that's the problem. People don't think about it. People read the Bible, but they don't study the Bible. And a lot of times we go to churches where people do go to churches where Somebody reads some pleasant things and explain nothing. Well, this is why Paul, or excuse me, uh, Solomon, in his wisdom, in giving us the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, uh, gives us this order and this progression that God uses to bring us into a knowledge of the answer to the question, what is truth? It begins with an instructor that knows the source of this information. 
That instructor knows that this knowledge comes from God. It's right here in this book. This whole book right here is the knowledge of God. This is his mind. This is the mind of God right here. You want to know how God thinks? Just read the Bible. You know how God thinks. You want to know what his ways are like? Well, just read the Bible. And that's how you know. And so it begins with instruction. Then it has to do with knowledge. But knowledge is not any good if you do not understand it. This is why we have that chapter in the Bible in Acts chapter 8 where Philip goes to the eunuch and says, Understandest thou what thou readest. That's the word. Understandest what thou readest. And he said, how can I accept some man show me? Why did God put that in the Bible? Because the Bible will never mean anything to anybody if they do not study it until they understand it. That's why it's important to meditate upon Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Until we really understand what's being said. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. We know nothing about God. That's what that verse means. We know nothing about him. This is the significance of Paul writing the 10th chapter of Romans. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend up to bring us how God thinks and God's ways because God himself was going to come and tell us that's what this book is. That's what the incarnation of Christ is. He came down. Now, when it comes to the ultimate destiny of all men, it's appointed that a man wants to die. What do we know about that? It's critical that we understand that because it is at death. Now listen to this carefully. At death, we're going to stand in front of the living God in heaven. And we're going to find out he's not just a way of thinking. He's not just a creed. He's not just a doctrine, not just an academic. He's a person. And he's the judge of all the earth. And he knoweth them that are his. Now, what person knows that that's what the, our experience is going to be the very split second you die? What do we know about death? Nothing apart from this book. Absolutely nothing. What do we know about life? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So much so that God does not regard one thought that we have as being of value. That's the meaning of let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, how much of his mind? Every word of God. That's how much. How much of our thoughts that we glean by living in, on the earth is a part of that thinking? Zero. Zero. Every single thought that we have, we have to die to. Why? Because if you sin in one thought, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Just in one thought. It has been said over and over in this church, we're one thought away from disaster. One thought. So, do we really understand that? Are we practically living out that understanding that we don't know anything apart from God? This is the significance when you really understand these things. 
of why Paul said, I die daily. Because there's no other remedy for my condition. I cannot study enough to become good. Because I find a law concerning my nature that when I would do right, how to do it I find not. In other words, I'm not capable of doing it. But there's somebody that I have found, and it's the same thing that Abraham found. I have found somebody that can do it in me. And it's the life of Christ. And that is the significance of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Why? Because it's the only remedy. I have to die. Totally. 100% to every, of everything that I am. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And because he does... I can now think his thoughts and live his ways. That's how you tie these passages together. And if you don't tie them together, you won't see the picture. You have to tie all these verses together to see this. There is no remedy for the old nature. Nicodemus did not understand these things. He was a master in ignorance because all of his knowledge he had learned from instructors that did not know the truth as a result they crucified the Lord of glory so it says in verse 7 or who shall descend into the deep that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. Well, we don't have to go there. Because Christ did and came back and told us what was on the other side. He sure did. So we do not say, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ or truth down because he came down. We do not have to say, Who's going to die and come back and tell us what's on the other side? Because we don't know. Because Christ did die and came back from the other side. And this whole book is teaching us what's over there. What's over there. And what's really over there is everything that he teaches us is over here right now. We don't have to wait and get there. To know what to expect. When we see him. We're going to be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And so the way it's going to be in eternity. Is the way it is and should be right now. At Calvary Memorial Church. As we all sit here. In the presence of. God the Holy Spirit who promised us he would be here. We wouldn't be able to see him. It doesn't matter. We don't have to see him. Whom having not seen, we love. In whom though now we see him not, yet rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. We can experience that right now, and it won't be any different in eternity. On the other side, of the grave. That's what this Bible is teaching. But let's think about it a little bit more carefully. Look at verse 8 because this is critical. The critical verse. Romans chapter 10 and verse 8. But what saith it? That's the question. What does all these things that he's been talking about from above actually say? It says this. The word is nigh thee. Now think about it. He just said, say not in thy heart, who shall ascend up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ from the dead. So the question is, where is this Christ? Where is this truth? Where is this knowledge? Where is this wisdom? 
He says it is nigh thee. Look at this. Even in thy mouth. Okay, I'm standing up here talking to you right now. This is my mouth. And I'm saying stuff. What am I saying? I'm saying to you what this means. Right here in verse 8. God is this close. He's as close as the word that you speak. When you speak according to this word. To the law, to the prophets, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Isaiah 8.20. To the law, to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. How close is God to you and me? He's as close as what comes out of your mouth. When you're speaking according to this word. Okay, let's read on. That is the word of faith which we preach. The word of faith. Okay, you, you need to think about every single little phrase here and every little word are you going to miss something huge he's now explaining to us the doctrine of eternal security it's the kind of faith that has no element of doubt okay where does it come from it comes from God's mind it's the word of faith Whose faith? His. Not ours. His. Folks, let me tell you, Nicodemus came to the Lord by night for one reason. He did not have enough faith to give him assurance of salvation. And there may be people at Calvary Memorial Church suffering the same problem I did for years. I know what I'm talking about right now. Because I've been through this. And the greatest, most joyful day in my life was when I discovered from God's word what this really means right here that I'm reading right now. And that is the doctrine of eternal security has to do with the faith that God has in himself. And he gave it to us. Christ came down. It was the faith that he had in himself to say, look, you're going to hell if you do not look to me 100% for your salvation. You can never go to church enough. You can never do enough to ever be saved. You have to be as holy as I am. You have to be as unblameable as I am, you have to be as unreprovable as I am in the sight of God, not your sight or anybody else's, in my sight. And so the question is, how can you ever get that? And the answer is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. This is why the other week... I mentioned this in Sunday school. We hated Christ without a cause. And he gives us the gift without a cause. There's not one reason that you can find in the Bible why the Lord should give us everlasting life. There's not one. What is there in us that would cause him to love us or to care about us, to give us the time of day. This is why David said, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Well, think about it. What is there about it that, you know, the Lord would save a Dwight Creech or you? What's he going to get out of that? 
When all we can think is evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders and thefts, and on and on it goes. Hearts that are deceitful above all above all things and desperately. What is God going to get out of this? Absolutely nothing from us. But I'll tell you what it satisfies. It satisfies his nature. That is love. There's no other explanation for why the Lord will save anybody. It's because he's so good. So good. There's none to compare to him. In the universe, there's no personality that can ever compare to the love of God. He loves us in a totally opposite way than we love one another. We love one another because others love us. We love because of what we can get out of them. God is not like that. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need Calvary Memorial Church. He doesn't need anything. Or he wouldn't be God. He is God. And God is love. And God is merciful. And God is gracious. And God is compassionate. And God is holy. And God is righteous. And he will give us everything that he is as a free gift if we'll just simply believe this. Unless he does, we're on our way to hell with no possibility of salvation. None. It's the gift of God Pure and simple. The gift of God. But when a person receives that gift, here's what's going to happen to them. There's going to be a radical change in their perspective of themselves that everybody else is going to see. And I'll tell you what it is. Death to self. And you'll see it in people. All of a sudden, you'll see humility that you have never seen before in a person that truly gets saved. Humility. You'll see people who change their conversation about other people. And they see them as somebody precious in God's sight that he died for. And you'll see that well, how can I be critical of this person when I've surveyed my own righteousness and found out I have done? And before I even talk about them, I'm going to think about this. That's what you begin to see in the way of a radical change in people. It's a radical change to where their sin nature is, it's got a bridle on it. You'll sense in yourself, you know, I'm thinking some thoughts about this person, but I'm, I'm going to stop that because that's not right. Because I remember what God said, inasmuch as you do it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you do it also unto me. And I'm going to start thinking about that every time I think about other people so that my love for others can increase more and more. That's what's needed at Calvary Memorial Church. A love that increases more and more. It cannot happen until we die to what we are, 100% 
Because anything that you may think that you are as a human being before a holy God is nothing. Absolutely nothing. We're deserving of hell every day of our life. Even after salvation, we're deserving of hell. Doesn't change. The fact that Christ died for us and suffered what we deserve forever is proof of that. There's nothing whatsoever that we could ever glory in in terms of what we know or what we can do. He is our life. Okay, how does he think about other people? That's how we should think. What would the Lord do when it comes to other people? That's what we should do. As he is, so should we be. That is a radical change in a person's life. Nicodemus had no clue what this Sunday school lesson has been about this morning. No clue. So let's go back to um, John um, chapter 3. I'm telling you, this chapter in the Bible is probably one of the, the most famous passages in all of Scripture and the least understood of all the passages in Scripture. Least understood. I pray that that will not be the case at Calvary Memorial Church as we study these things. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This was a man with tremendous influence for evil. He was an instructor, an instructor, a teacher, a master, a person that had ascended as high as you could go in human learning. The same came to Jesus by night. Why? Because he was totally in the dark. This is God's way of letting us know what he knew. He didn't know anything. <clears throat> he was in the darkness of ignorance. And he said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. And here's why he says that. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, I want you to notice how a miss is as good as a mile. What did he really know about the person of Jesus Christ? Well, he tells us. We know that God has something to do with you because no man could do what you are doing unless God was with him. Somehow or other, God was involved. Folks, there's a multitude of people sitting in churches this morning that don't know any more than what Nicodemus said right here. You see, what he didn't see and what he was not able to say is what you learn by reading John chapter 10. So turn to John chapter 10, and I'll show you. I'll show you the ignorance of the man. John chapter 10. And let's begin reading at verse 24.
Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works, now notice carefully what he says now. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And notice what he's saying here. I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. What is he saying here? Well, they knew what he was saying. He was saying that he was God. That's what he was saying. I mean, how could anybody but God give anybody eternal life? He didn't say the Father will give you eternal life. He said, I give you eternal life. And you're going to be eternally secure in my hand. You don't have to hold on to anything because I'm holding on to you. That's eternal security. Folks, you can't hold on to anything enough to have eternal security. Everything is dependent upon him and his hand and what God can do. Everything. Then he says, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. But then he says, I and my father are one. What does that mean? It means that he's the same as God. It means the same thing that he told Philip when he said, how long have I been with you, Philip, and yet you do not know me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And here he says it. I and my Father are one. Now notice what we read next. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not. But for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man, makest thyself God. Okay, what was it that Nicodemus said? Now think about it. In verse 2 of John's Gospel, he says, The same came to Jesus by night, and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He was focusing on the miracles and did not see that only God could perform the miracles that he did. That's what he failed to see. He failed to see that Jesus Christ is God. Now, in John's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 38, you get the kicker verse that explains it all. Verse 38 of John chapter 10. But if I do, excuse me, uh, verse 37, let's read it with it. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, Though you believe me not, or believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. This is what Nicodemus did not put together. 
that no man could do what he was doing unless he was God. Who but God could create eyes and put them in the, mind, the, the head of a man born blind? What, what kind of person would you have to be to be able to do that? What kind of person would you have to be to go into every city and every village and heal everyone of all their sicknesses and all their diseases? Who can do that? Who can heal a leper? And that's an incurable disease. Who can do that? Who can look at a, a man that has been for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda unable to walk? has to be carried everywhere he goes. And walk up to him and say, take up thy bed and walk, and he'd be able to do it. Who could do that? No one but God. Nicodemus could not put together the miracles with his actual identity. That's what's going on here. That's what this is about. Nicodemus was focusing on the miracles as though he was some kind of, uh, oh, what's that guy's name, the illusionist, David Copperfield. Oh, wow, boy, that's quite an illusion. How do you do that? Or you do a, a trick with your hand with cards or something like that. How did you do that? Man, that's a miraculous, miraculous. And this is how Nicodemus considered the, the work of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's God. As we're going to see as we continue our studies in John chapter 3, and we've got to quit. As we're going to see, the Lord explains why Nicodemus and everybody else is lost. It's because we hate the truth. We hate God, we do. We sure do. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I had a hard time accepting that as being really true, that I hate God. As I study this book, I find out that that's exactly the truth. I love myself, and I love my way, my way of thinking and my way of doing but God loves me without a reason because there's not one reason he should, but he does. Our time is gone. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dave Miller back there, pray for us, brother.